0: Billion
1: people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, I am very excited for today's episode. It has been a
0: long time in the making, more than 100 years in the making to be exact, Because today we are going to delve into the life of a brilliant woman who had a hand in making not only art and fashion history, but also transgender and intersex history. Her story is incredibly fascinating and really reveals the depth of the human capacity to love. Today, I am so pleased to introduce our listeners to one of my all-time favorite artists, Gerda Wegener.
1: And some of you might not need an introduction if you have already seen the 2015 film The Danish Girl, which was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Eddie Redmayne for uh, Best Actor, and Alicia Vikander, who won the Oscar for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for her betrayal of Garda Wegner. And whether you have already seen the movie or
0: not, what we have to say is certain to surprise you. While the movie The Danish Girl is based on the lives of two real-life artists, The film is actually a heavily fictionalized account. This was all in service to the story arc of the film, which focused not on Gerda, but on the transition of her husband, Einar Wegener, to Lily Els Elvinus, who is more widely known to the transgender and intersex communities, as well as historians, as the woman Lily Elb. So Lily was one of the first recipients of a corrective gender surgery in 1930. And while our focus today will be on Gerda, it's really impossible to tell
1: her tale without speaking a great deal about Lily as well. Well, April, I think we should just start at the very beginning with the birth of Gerda Marie Frederick Gottlieb. She was born on March 15, 1885 to Ove, Emile, and Justine Gottlieb. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we did an episode on the Israeli swimsuit designer Leah Gottlieb last season, although to our knowledge, there is no relation. So Ave was a pastor, and Gerda would grow up an only child. Throughout her early education, she showed great artistic promise, and she pursued lessons before enrolling at the Art School for Women at the Royal Danish Academy in 1902 at the age of 17. And it was there at the age of 19 that she met and then married 21-year-old
0: Einar Weger, a fellow painter who would become her favorite model, her favorite female model. So I think we should explain for our intents and purposes today It's important for us to address our use of Einar versus Lily and the he and she pronouns because prior to having her corrective surgery in 1930, Lily lived as and thought of herself as Einar, as a man, with Lily making appearances from time to time. So uh, we're going to talk about this autobiography that we use. and, And the autobiography uses he pronouns when referencing Einar. And although the work was penned as Lily... She did not yet fully identify as a woman. So this is an important distinction that that we ourselves will be employing today when telling not only Gerda's, but also Lily's story. We're going to follow in suit with the book using he periods for when Einar is discussed and she when we're referencing Lily.
1: And another quick side note um, April mentioned, we will be drawing from Lily's 1931 quote-unquote, autobiography, Man into Woman, extensively today. And while we do know that a manuscript penned by Lily existed by 1930, it is actually believed that there were several other individuals that had significant roles in editing what was eventually published. So events were perhaps reconstructed from letters or close friends' recollections, some passages of the book may have been written by others close to Lily. So perhaps, April, we should think of this as a biography with a substantial amount of input from the subject, a quasi-autobiography, just yes, an important yes. distinction we wanted yeah, to make. Yeah. But, but we
0: do know that the, the 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 core of the manuscript was actually written by Lily herself. So as early as 1904... Uh, Einar was posing in women's clothing for his wife. You know, ostensibly this began when a client failed to show up for her portrait sitting. And if you have already seen The Danish Girl, this is one of the very earliest scenes of the film. And indeed, Lily Elbe's autobiography corroborates this. You know, Lily writes that um, there was a famous actress that Gerda was going to be painting that day, and she called to tell her that she couldn't make the sitting, and could Andreas pose instead for Gerda? And in the book, Andreas, um, which was Einar's middle name, became a pseudonym that he employed in the autobiography to protect Einar's identity. Because, of course, as you can imagine, as one of the first recipients of a corrective gender operation, there was a lot of curiosity about this worldwide. So basically what happened was the actress couldn't make the sitting. She said, she asked Gerda, quote, Cannot Andreas, a.k.a. Einar, pose as a model for the lower part of the picture? His Legs and feet are as pretty as mine. So Einar first declined, but Gerda would not give up. And after much cajoling, he finally relented.
1: Right, and he says, quote, A few minutes later, I was standing in the studio and costume, and high-heeled shoes. And to make the disguise complete, Gret fetched out a carnival wig from the depths of a trunk, a fair, very curly wig, and drew it over my head. Then she attacked me with rouge and powder, which I submitted patiently to everything. And when I was all ready, we could scarcely believe our eyes. I turned around and stared at myself in a mirror again and again, trying to recognize myself. Gret clapped her hands delightedly, the most perfect lady's model, she cried again and again. You look as if you had never worn anything but women's clothes in your life. And I should interject here. Just as um, uh, uh, Einar's
0: name was changed to Andreas, um, uh, Gerda's name was actually changed to Gret. So not so much difference Not there, so subtle. But, yeah. <laughs> but when we're quoting, if we call her Gret, we're talking about Gerda. Um, Lily, about this moment, goes on to write, quote, I cannot deny, strange as it sounds, that I enjoyed myself in this disguise. I liked the feel of soft women's clothing. Indeed, I seemed to take them as a matter of course. I felt very much at home in them from the very first moment. And she notes that, All of these events took place in the very earliest years of Einar and Gerda's marriage, sometime around 1904, as I mentioned before. And I'm really kind of stressing this date because according to the film, The Danish Girl, this particular scene took place in Copenhagen in 1926, which was a full 22 years later. So why did they do this? Um, Well, part of that can be credited to the fact that the film was based on a novel of the same name, which was published in 2000 by the American writer David Ebershoff. And this is a fictional novel that withholds the details of more than 20 years of Gerda and Einar's life together. And Gerda's own story at this point was entirely omitted for the sake of quickening the plot, which really centered around Einar and then later Lily
1: very typical hollywoodization of a of a story and it's such a shame because those were the years that gerda Starr really shone the brightest her fame arguably eclipsing that of her husband between the years 1904 and 1909 she was still quite young she exhibited her works in danish exhibitions in addition to creating cartoons for the danish newspaper politiken Einer was also steadily gaining notice at this period, and he received awards for his landscape paintings. And all the while, he was enjoying modeling for his wife as a woman. During this time, the couple took great delight in the occasions when both husband and wife presented in public together as female, Gerda accompanied by her most charming cousin, who was now dubbed Lily. So, after an extended tour of Italy, the couple settled permanently in Paris in 1912,
0: and almost immediately... Goethe's work garnered a reception in Paris that had simply not in her homeland before. Lily later wrote, quote, Shortly afterwards arriving, Gret was invited by a well-known Parisian illustrated periodical. He had, in fact, seen Greta's pictures and sketches in her first
1: exhibition in Paris. So it would seem Goethe's work, which happened to be sketches of Lily, was already known in Paris prior to 1912. And Lily goes on to tell us that Gret was all on fire to begin her contributions immediately. But what should she offer? How quickly should she hunt up a suitable model? She looked at me inquiringly, hesitated for a few moments, and then said, what do you think of Lily? And with that, Einar, who had given little thought to Lily during their Italian sojourn, Happily acquired the wardrobe necessary to the fashionable Parisienne and resumed modeling duties for Goethe from time to time, augmenting the Parisian models Goethe also hired.
0: So one of the first publications that Goethe contributed to in Paris was a luxury limited edition fashion magazine entitled Journal des Dames de Mode. And it is thanks to this publication that Cass and I first discovered her work. And we're going to hear more about that after this brief sponsor break.
1: Trust listeners, you have heard April and I mention on the show before, but in 2015, we published our very first book together, Fashion and the Art of Pochoir, which examines a very specific time period between 1908 and 1925 when fashion illustration was modernized at the hands of a select group of finely trained artists that included among many uh, the artists Paula Riebe, Georges Barbier, Georges Lepape, Eduardo Benito, and Gerda Wegner. After moving to Paris, Goethe became one of several artists to contribute to the luxury limited edition fashion magazine known as Journal de Dame de Mode. And this magazine had actually been reinvented by publisher Tom Antonini in 1912 after a 73-year hiatus. So... Journal de Damme de Mode was one of the most beloved titles in the history of fashion plates, and it was this tiny blue-gray unbound journal of just eight pages of text, but it's generally held to be the first French fashion publication containing fashion plates that emerged in the wake of the traumatic events of the French Revolution.
0: Yes, it was originally launched um, in the late 18th century by the Parisian bookseller Jean-Baptiste Selic and the former priest, Pierre de la Messangère, in 1797, and at that time, it was issued every five days and was really considered an authoritative source on Parisian culture and society, and it covered the latest word on art, theater, literature, music, philosophy,
1: education, and of course, fashion. Absolutely. And the publication really had a strong domestic but also international following with subscriptions delivered to the French provinces and as far away as Russia, Spain, and Turkey as women all around the world sought to emulate the legendary chic of the Parisian. And this was very much thanks to the highly desirable nature of its exquisite hand-tinted costume Parisian fashion plates. And I would just like to interject here because so, so, so,
0: so, so, so many times I have seen Fashion plates from Journal de Dame de Mode being credited in books and things that the publication that they're from is something called Costume Parisienne, but this is not correct. No, no, no. <laughs> these uh, The source of these plates are absolutely Journal de Dame de Mode. They say Costume Parisienne at the top because what it says is Paris fashion, right? It's just describing what's seen
1: in the image. It's a description, it's not the title of the publication. Exactly. And for nearly 50 years, this costume Parisian series of plates appeared in each issue of Journal de Dame de Mode. And today they really remain one of the most important sources of information about fashions of the time period spanning the Directory and Empire eras all the way up to the early portion of Queen Victoria's reign when the publication closed its doors, and that was in 1848. It was in hoping to really capitalize on the title's former renown that Antonini relaunched the publication in 1912. But he really stuck close to the format established by his predecessors, although he did issue journal every ten days, and he replaced hand tinting with the pochoir technique. And more than two dozen artists contributed to its run, which was only between 1912 and 1914. Yes, and it was in researching our chapter
0: on Journal de Dame de Mode for our book that Cass and I really immersed ourselves in learning about each and every single one of those illustrators. And it was really at the very tail end of doing this after we'd been pouring over hundreds and hundreds of plates and looking at more than two dozen artists um, for months and months and months that we found the
1: plates that had this really unique quality all of their own. Right. And they stood out from the rest in the fact that the women illustrated in the plates were highly expressive and spirited, whether they were depicted as innocent ingenues or seductive sirens. You can really detect this sense of intellect and mischief simmering just below the surface of their rather delicate demeanors. And I think April and we were just like, wait, what is this? Who are these? And who the heck is Gerda Wagner? Yeah, we we were totally transfixed. And it was because her style was so
0: distinct and it like really stood out from all the rest. And Gerda's world really revels in a sort of sly, knowing femininity where her subjects welcome the viewer's gaze upon them. And oftentimes they even seem to reciprocate that kind of sentiment of amorous desire right back. And, and her figures rarely open their mouths to speak but one of Gerda's greatest skills was her ability to infuse emotion and intellect into her subject's facial expressions. It's, it's basically like a thousand words conveyed in a single glance. They have these really enormous almond-shaped eyes, often half closed in reverie. And a lot most of her figures have this perfectly pursed Cupid's bow lips, almost always closed, as I mentioned. And, and these are trademarks of her depictions of both men and women
1: all the way throughout her career. It was just part of her style. Absolutely. And I have to say one of my absolute favorites, and we will post images of these, of course, is that beautiful picture from Journal de Mode of the woman in the pink. And she's laying across the chaise oh, and she's yes. reading that letter and it's kind of laid across her lap. And it's, there's just something so incredibly beautiful about her work and something so special about the fact that, of course, it's by a woman illustrator. And and Gerda was incredibly adroit
0: with her use of line, um, and, and she was dubbed by one art critic as the, quote, princess of line, because her strokes were really flowing, they're really sinuous, no matter what the subject matter is. The shapes that she creates feel innately feminine, kind of like the contour of a hip or the curve of a breast. And as curator Andrea Rig Harburg of the Danish and Museum of Modern Art has written, quote, Whatever Gerda Wegner paints is feminized in her universe. And Cass, as you know, um, her depictions of women far outnumber that of men. And while she did paint and draw her husband as a man on multiple occasions, quote, in general, her pictures of men are often particularly androgynous in character.
1: Yeah, so Goethe did not believe in a hierarchy of artistic mediums, and while she was a much-in-demand fashion illustrator and portrait painter, she also produced an incredible amount of illustrations for Parisian satirical publications, and this included Le Rire, Le Bayonet, and Le Sourire. And in fact, the French art historian Frank Clostre has called Wagner... The greatest satirical cartoonist in the Parisian press during World War I. So that is a huge compliment. <laughs> yes. Their cartoons really challenge the enemy central powers of Austria, Germany, and Bulgaria with biting wit and a deep understanding of the political landscape of this time.
0: And Gerda was completely comfortable in simultaneously flexing her political acumen in the realm of satire while also taking on commercial advertising commissions. Luxury cosmetics products especially sought her out, for instance, Malestienne face powder, as well as Dendele's toothpaste, which casts retailed on the very exclusive Rue de la Paix, which I think Ooh. is just charming. Luxury toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of my all-time favorites of her advertisements is for Tendely's Face Cream, and this depicts a beautiful young woman who's about to dip her finger into a pot of their product Well, in her other hand she, and it's a really delicately beautiful rendered hand. She holds a few inches from her face a mask of an older woman with furrowed brows and wrinkles. And of course, this implies that by using the Tendalise face cream,
1: you can throw off the effects of aging. Which <laughs> and, and the ad is just brilliant. I'm actually really glad you mentioned how she worked with hands. She really had this wonderful way with them. The fingers are always elongated and so expressive and. It would make sense that Gerda would take up these advertising commissions for beauty products, not just for a paid gig, but because she herself loved cosmetics. She was said to wear more than was generally accepted at the time. Um, (laughs) Get it, girl. (laughs) Photos of her reveal a young woman with a love of fashion of the teens and 20s, all of which, of course, she really depicted in her work.
0: And her female subjects were a very particular type. You know, they were young, they were carefree, they were savvy, and they were tray très chic. You know, they were wearing all the cutting-edge styles of the exact moment in which they were captured. We see the really wide, beplumed hats of the 19-teens and the transition to bobbed hair and the cloche. And we see the frilled and flounced dresses of the World War I years, which later give way to the waistless shift dresses of the
1: 1920s. And aside from being able to glean quite a lot of information on fashion of her own time from her work, it really must be said that Gerda herself was quite the fashion historian, which we, of course, love. She really took the time to study the history of women's clothing, and she frequently interpreted styles from the past. So, particularly to serve the storylines of the multitude of books' elite publishers hired her to illustrate using the pochois technique that we discussed earlier. So, for instance, for Casanova's limited edition of 500 copies of Une Aventure d'Amour à Venise, she delivered the voluminous fashions of the 18th century, a period she really returned to again and again in her work. Or take for an instance one of her ads for a malicine face powder, which she worked with
0: for quite a long time. Um, This one in question features three young women in a theater loge or theater box. And one of the young women is powdering her face while a gentleman looks on smiling over her shoulder. But all four of them are decked out in the latest fashions of the 1840s. The women are wearing these really beautiful um, off-the-shoulder evening gowns with like tiers and tiers of lace. They have these expansive skirts. And of course, the very unmistakable hairstyles of the period in which these very tight ringlets
1: of curls frame the face. Or what about that piece that you sent me an image of a while back that was up for auction? The Paradise of Women from 1925. So in the lower left corner, is uh, it's occupied by a stage on which five women in contemporary styles of the 1920s are standing, and we'll come back to them in a moment. But it's the audience watching that I really wanted to touch on first. This consists of 10 women dressed in various time periods of fashionable historic dress. We see the henan and horned headdresses of the Middle Ages. We see a woman with the conspicuous sleeves of the 17th century, an early 18th century fontange headdress in front, and center is a woman in a wide pannier dress of the time of Marie Antoinette, and behind her is a woman in patriotic styles of the French Revolution, and next to her is a Marveilleuse. And of course, we've done a two-part episode on the French Revolution and the anti-fashions that emerged in its wake, so check that out if you have not.
0: And to finish all of this off, in the front, we also see a woman in 1830s fashions who's whispering to a woman next to her who's wearing stylists in the 1840s. So the audience is really, you know, considering the women on stage with wonder, while the women from the 1920s on stage are kind of exchanging these knowing glances that are seeming to say, ugh, the audience is so (laughs) old-fashioned, which is kind of hilarious. To be fair. Mm (laughs) But, but maybe even the most interesting part is what the women on stage are wearing. To the far right, we see a garçon um, who has donned a menswear-inspired suit with a tailored below-the-knee skirt that's been paired with a white collared shirt and an orange tie. And she carries a cane beneath her arm.
1: And the three main figures on the stage are April I mean, how erotic are they? They are. (laughs) At a quick glance, you might surmise that they are wearing little shift dresses of the mid-1920s, but closer inspection really reveals that two of them have exposed breasts, and one of them has an entirely backless dress that reveals her talks so you know from her collar there's this necklace of um, a row of pearls and it extends from the back of her neck between the crevasse of her buttocks and likewise the woman with exposed breasts next to her has on a collar necklace with these pearl strands that appear to be held by two cupids floating in the sky above so there's really a lot to unpack there and we will post this of course and um, we will do more to unpack that after we return from a short sponsor break So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
1: Welcome
0: back. Cass, I'm not sure we entirely have enough time to get into all the nuances of the piece that we just discussed, but this is a really good opportunity for me to talk about one of my favorite genres of Gerda's work, and that is her erotica.
1: Mm, Yes. Yes, please. A woman. (laughs) As a
0: woman in the 1920s, she was a highly sought out illustrator of erotica, which was unusual at the time, to say the very least. Again, for these luxury limited editions that were employing the postwar technique, Goethe was illustrating all sorts of sensuous and salacious stories, including um, the work Conte by Jeanne de la Fatin, also Eric Alatini's Sur Talon Rouge, and the 12 sonnets of Louis Procaze's Les de Eros. So, Cass, you know one of these pieces from de Eros is one of my... Prize possessions,
1: and it hangs on my bedroom wall. Yes, and I remember when you bought it at auction from an auction in Denmark, and you were very Mm -hmm. excited, and I was very excited for you. Um, I have to say that I also adore her erotica because she really does it with such grace. While These are images, of course, of human sexuality. They aren't necessarily explicit per se. They're often very tender and playful, and She actually often signed her erotic works, not with her name, but with a griff of a black carnival mask. And so Masquerade was really an ongoing theme throughout her career, which should not be a surprise since issues of identity played out daily in her life with Einar and Lily. Yes, and I'd also like to point out that she did quite a bit of lesbian
0: erotica, which leads us to the question that I'm sure has been burning on everyone's mind what exactly was the relationship between Gerda and Einar? And how did she feel about Lily's increasingly frequent appearances? Well, Cass, it's, it's difficult to say. And honestly, is it anyone's business? No. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> they, they were quite happy together in Paris for many, 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 many years. And amongst those who studies Gerda's work, um, it really is believed that she probably did have relations with both men and women. And this obviously deepens and informs the obvious love and appreciation of women that she has in her work. But in uh, the autobiography, Lily writes that Einar never had homosexual feelings and even confirms that he and Gerda did have marital relations.
1: And in terms of Gerda's feeling towards Lily, it's beyond obvious that Gerda really supported her. Lily is the subject of a large portion of Gerda's creative output. Um, Gerda's painting, One the Way to Anna Capri, from 1922, depicts her and Lily strolling along a coastal landscape. And Lily drapes an arm languidly over Gerda's shoulder and looks directly at the viewer. While Gerda is seen in profile in the style of Italian Renaissance painters, and she's holding an apple in her hand. I mean, her reference with the apple to Eve is pretty clear here, right? That
0: they are both women. And also in the grand tradition of painting, Goethe also frequently painted Lily in the nude, um, and and these these compositions clearly evidence Goethe's command of the history of art because there are a lot of references to Aang's odalesques. um, And and one painting in particular, which is from 1924, which is entitled In the Summer Heat, Lily is nude, save a pair of these really dainty satin mules on her feet. And she's seen from the back, all curled up in an 18th century chair with a Japanese fan in one hand. And and all these really beautiful
1: womanly curves of her body um, are on full display from the back. So despite the obvious support and adoration from his wife, Einar was becoming increasingly despondent during the 1920s. And of this time, Einar wrote, This condition is gradually becoming intolerable. Lily is no longer content to share her existence with me. She wants to have an existence of her own. So dangerously depressed during the late 1920s, Einar had been seeking medical advice and really to no avail no one understood his feelings or his condition and at one point he even underwent a series of quack medicine radiation treatments that nearly killed him Lilly wrote that
0: Einar was resolute to kill himself by the end of the year at the moment that a friend introduced him to a German doctor who may be able to help. And this was really the last gasp of hope um, that eventually became a ray of hope when the doctor concluded, as Einar had himself long suspected, that physically his body displayed the characteristics of both male and female sexes, that he was likely intersexed. And if this is what Einar truly desired, that he would undertake and organize a series of gender corrective surgeries necessarily to give Lily the existence that she really desired.
1: And Lily writes extensively about the surgeries, one after another, um, to remove her male sex organs and the pain and recovery from the surgeries to make her body female. One of the operations confirmed the presence of stunted ovaries, so a revelation that gave Lily great relief, and as did the incredible care she received at the women's clinic in Dresden where Gerda visited frequently during the long months of Lily's recovery. So the last name Alb, which Lily chose for herself when the Danish government issued a new passport recognizing Lily as female, was a tribute to the river which runs through Dresden, the peaceful city which Lily believed saved her life. So it's a wonderful tribute. And around the same time, the king of Denmark declared the marriage between Gerda and Einar null and void, and Lily herself declared Einar her dead brother. Immediately following Lily's successful operations, Gerda brought Lily
0: from Dresden to Berlin to acclimate living openly as a woman. And in this time period, the two of them had a lot of intimate conversations And Lily suggested that Gerda remarry because Lily was aware that Gerda had, for a while, had feelings for a mutual friend, an Italian officer, Fernando Porta, um, who they had met together many, many years prior. And he had kind of floated in and out of their lives on different occasions. And Lily was starting to suffer from a lot of regret that perhaps Gerda's continued care for Lily's own happiness had hampered Gerda's own happiness. So Gerda agreed that, that she would consider to remarry on the condition that Lily come to live with them for an extended period
1: following their marriage so that she could be sure that Lily was really well enough to live on her own. In what would turn out as a surprise for Lily, she also found love in the form of a close friend of her and Gerda's, the art dealer Claude Lejeune. And Lejeune had been one of Lily's biggest supporters during the years leading up to her surgeries and during her recovery. And the two became engaged sometime in late 1930, early 1931. Um, the press had gotten wind of Lily's story by this time, which sparked this worldwide media frenzy. And Goethe and Lily thought it best to get ahead of all the speculation themselves and planned a two person exhibition of their work at a gallery in Copenhagen. And it coincided with an interview Lily would give to the Danish newspaper Politiken, which you may recall Gerda had worked for years previous.
0: And this article quotes Lily as saying, Einar Wegener has willingly, quote, obliterated himself to make room for someone who he thought had a greater right of existence than himself. Einar Wegener is no more therefore can no longer paint. So all of these works in the exhibition by Einar were previous works, and some of the
1: income generated by these sales went to pay for a portion of Lily's medical bills. And following the exhibition, Goethe uh, married Porta in March of 1931, and the newlyweds moved to Marrakesh, where Porta was stationed as an Italian diplomat. Lily returned to the women's clinic in Dresden in the summer of 1931 with the hopes of another round of surgeries that would give her the ability to conceive a child with Claude. Sadly, Lily did not find the same success as she had had in her first round of
0: surgeries, which we must remember were at the absolute forefront of medical knowledge at this time. Lily did go through um, with the second round, but she became critically ill. And after suffering from a variety of infections for months, her body just couldn't support itself any longer. And, and ultimately, it would be a heart attack as a result of these infections that resulted in her death in September of
1: 1931. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And one would hope for Greta's sake that in this period of upheaval and grief that she found stability and solace in her new life in Morocco, And we do know that she continued to paint, but the intimate details of her life with Porto are hazy. And she felt cut off from the art world. She'd been immersed in from the earliest years of her life and the couple divorced in 1936 amid rumors of abuse. So awful. And we've not been able to substantiate this, but then again, these things were not spoken openly of in the 1930s. Yeah.
0: And Gerda After the divorce, um, spent some time in both France and also Italy before eventually taking up residence once again in Copenhagen in 1938, and things were just not well there at all. And despite the fact that she had earned quite handsomely as one of the top female artists and illustrators in Paris for decades, at this point in her life, she was virtually destitute Cass, I really have to wonder what exactly happened in those intervening years that put her in such a precarious position, you know, when she was living abroad. So despite the extraordinary highs and lows of her life, I think maybe it was all just too much to bear because Gerda Wagner died penniless and alone in Frederiksberg Hospital in Copenhagen on July 20th, 1940. She was
1: only 55. Okay. This is a little bit of a sad end. Well, a lot of a sad end, but I mean... Yeah, I actually cried while writing this yeah. ending, I would just like to say. <laughs> and it's not an uncommon story among many people that we've featured on Dressed. So, I mean, this is life, and hers was an incredible life. Um, What a story. And to think that her story to this day remains relatively unknown. There's really no significant biography on her that exists. And April, I know you've been digging into her life for years, And the matter of the fact is because she lived her life in various countries, information on her is just extremely difficult to come by. Yes, Cass, I got very excited in 2015 when the Arken Museum in Copenhagen
0: announced that they would be mounting a retrospective of her work to coincide with the release of the film The Danish Girl. You know, much of the work in this exhibition had to be borrowed from private collectors and museums abroad, and the reason for this is because very few major Danish museums have collected Gerda Wegner's works. She was far and away held in higher regard by the French. I mean... Take, for instance, the fact that in 1914, the poet Poliniere wrote, quote, Mrs. Wegener is a delicate and spiritual young woman. Her grace and unprudish drawings have given her great success and recognition as one of Parisians' own. Wow. And I have to say, I think the French government agreed with Poliniere because between the years of 1923 and 1932, they officially acquired three of her paintings, two of which are of lily. So the 1922 painting La Siesta, which is in the collection of the Pompidou Center in Paris, depicts Lily lounging in bed, reading a copy of the book Le
1: Liaison Dangereux. Dangerous Liaisons, a fitting title to end on, in light of the fact that the stakes of Gerda Einer and Lily's lives were so incredibly high. The story of the Wagner marriage is one of unbridled artistic talent, unconditional love, boundless courage, fame and infamy, but most of all, fearlessness to live their truths. What else can be said except the fact that, Gerda,
0: we are so, so grateful to have discovered your beautiful illustrations in Journal de Dame de mode that fateful day so many years ago so that our listeners can learn
1: the true story about the other Danish girl. Yes, thank you, Gerda. Well, that does it for us this week, Dress listeners. May you consider what your wardrobe says about your identity next time you get dressed. And don't forget, join us Thursday for our fashion history mystery minisodes, where we answer your questions. If you would like to propose a question
0: for us, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or direct messages on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also where we post images to accompany each week's episode. You can find us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. And a very special thank you to fellow Gerda Wegener enthusiast Monroe Warshaw for kindly lending me his English copy of the Arkham Museum publication when the copy that I ordered, which was out of print, actually arrived, and it was in Danish. So, Monroe,
1: thank you. You're a lifesaver. And don't forget, you can get fashion history swag from our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's t-e-e-public.com forward slash dressed. And you can find our book, Fashion and the Art of Pochoir on Amazon. Shameless self-promotion. Shameless self-promotion. And it's <laughs> uh, chock full of absolutely gorgeous fashion pochoir fashion illustrations from the teens and 20s. Many of them featuring designs by designers we've spoken about on Dressed like Worth, Pat Ken, Van, Vionnet. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. Bye.